the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked the favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You'll indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, uh, you might have heard this quote from, uh, from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night when Malvolio uh, says, Some are become great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. The uh, desire for greatness is a powerful and also a destructive uh, influence uh, and desire in our lives and in our world. C.S. Lewis Uh, points out in his book Mere Christianity that uh, pride gets no pleasure out of something. Uh, It has no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. We want to be great. We want to be great people, but more than that, we don't just want to be great, but we want to be greater and better and more wonderful than somebody else or uh, everybody else. And something of that clearly stood behind uh, the mother of James and John, the two disciples, when she comes to Jesus and asks him for a favour. She says in uh, verse 21, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. There's nothing like an inside track. We always want the easy path to greatness and you have to uh, hand it to Mrs Zebedee. She was probably, uh, you know, understood at least something of the gospel of grace. She's uh, coming to Jesus and asking for it rather than trying to uh, work the way there. But, but uh, she's keen for her two sons to get a leg up. And Jesus says no. He says that's not up to him to give. He can't uh, give that honour uh, to sit next to him in his kingdom to, to be uh, honoured along with him. That belongs to God the Father to give out uh, those privileges. 
But instead of just saying no, just simply saying no, instead Jesus says something more profound. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he asks this question, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Now you would have thought it was pretty clear uh, to James and John and their mum what they were asking for. They wanted honour. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of pretty clear I would have thought. But in truth, they hadn't figured out what greatness in the kingdom of heaven really meant. Uh, if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, many of us would be, you probably know that uh, the language cup comes up again in, in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane approaching the cross, he talks about his cup, that his cup might be taken away from him, that the cup of his suffering might be taken away from him. In the Old Testament, uh, a cup was a common a kind of expression used to refer to suffering. Uh, Jesus had uh, just explained uh, in the verses before the ones, uh, the verses that Ben read in verses 18 and 19, he says, he explains what his suffering would involve. We're going up to Jerusalem, he says, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Could James and John, could the two sons of Mrs Zebedee, could they drink that cup that Jesus was going to suffer and to take on himself? They think they can. They say, yes, we can drink that same cup. There's a sense which, in which that's true. There's a sense in which uh, they could drink the cup that Jesus was going to drink and there's also a sense in which they couldn't and they wouldn't. Uh, when it came time for Jesus to suffer, Everybody deserted him, including his disciples and including James and John. They all gave up and ran away. They couldn't face the suffering which Jesus was going to endure. They couldn't face the suffering, the wrath of God. They couldn't face that and endure it and live. Jesus would face the cup of God's wrath alone. And yet there's a sense also in which these two disciples would drink from the same cup as Jesus. Like Jesus, they would suffer because as we've seen again and again in the book of Matthew, to follow Jesus is to suffer. It's to follow the way of suffering for the kingdom of God. It's interesting, uh, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, there's only one more time where this expression, one on his right and one on his left, comes up. And it's at the cross. Jesus says to the disciples, you don't know what you're asking for. What is it to be honoured alongside Jesus? It's to be crucified alongside him as well. Don Carson writes, to ask to reign with Jesus is to ask to suffer with him. Or again, to ask for worldly wealth and much honour is often to ask for anxiety, temptation, disappointment and envy. In the spiritual arena, to ask for great usefulness and reward is often to ask for great suffering. But more often than not, we don't want that, do we? We want greatness without the cost. But think of the, great, think of the people who have been great in the kingdom of heaven. Who is it? It's the people who've taken the great cost upon themselves. I mean, we might think of missionaries who've gone to the uh, far... Uh, 
places in the world who've given up everything that they have in order to serve the gospel. We might think of martyrs, people who've been martyred for their faith, who've been executed and refusing to deny Jesus Christ. But actually, the great cost that people endure is not just the great cost, uh, great in those senses as well. There's lots of people who, who do great things, suffer great cost in small ways as well. I always think of my grandmother, I'm sure I've told this story before, but I always think of my grandmother whose life was to do everything in her power to make it possible for my grandfather to do ministry. She gave herself to that, she devoted her life to that. She was not a great woman by any stretch of the imagination. She never did anything amazing in the world's eyes. But she was great in the kingdom of heaven because she devoted her life to enabling my grandfather to do ministry. But we want, we want other kinds of greatness, don't we? We want to be known, to be renowned. And we want greatness without the cost and without great suffering. But Jesus says it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. The two go hand in hand. So be careful, Jesus says, what you ask for because greatness in the kingdom of heaven invariably involves great suffering. Well, when the other disciples find out what uh, James and John and Mrs Zebedee have been asking Jesus, they're shocked, they're outraged. How could they go and ask Jesus for that? They're indignant. They're indignant because they want to be important too. They're not indignant because, oh, these guys have missed the point. They're indignant because they want to be important as well. And Jesus shows their attitude up for what it really is. He says, you're acting just like the leaders in the world. Verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. It's not actually, uh, funnily enough, it's not actually immediately clear how Jesus' statement is a response to the disciples' reaction. After all, they weren't actually abusing their power. So Jesus says, you know, the Gentiles lorded over uh, people under their authority, but the disciples haven't actually been doing that. All they've wanted is to have power. They haven't abused it. What's the connection? I think the, uh, the deeper connection between what Jesus is saying and the disciples' thirst for power is that in the pursuit of power lies the seeds out of which the abuse of power grows. The pursuit of power, in that lies the seeds out of which the abuse of power grows. People who will stop at nothing to get power are the very same people who stop at nothing to keep their power. They're the very same people who will stop at nothing in the exercise of that power. We see that daily, don't we, in the Middle East. And that's a scary thought, actually. We've uh, had the unpleasant privilege of enduring an election campaign. Ben's alluded to it already. And to be honest, it's a pretty sordid affair, isn't it? Everybody protests and says, we uh, want a kinder, more gentle polity. And every day I wake up to news radio 
and interviews with politicians slandering the other side. We're supposed to respect our political leaders but every day our political leaders do everything in their power to climb over the top of the other side so that they can get into government. There's a barrage of accusations. Not a discussion about policies or facts, not a grown-up discussion, but slander and accusation. And all to get into power, to win, to beat the others. And Jesus says that's the style of worldly leadership. If you want to know what it looks like, look in the Middle East and look at the Australian political landscape. It's the same heart behind both uh, political systems. So that's the style, Jesus says. What's the style of Christian leadership? What's the style of the Christian life? Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. What's the style? The style is servanthood and slavery. To be a servant in Jesus' day was to be responsible for uh, the mundane tasks, the household chores, cleaning, preparing meals, doing all those kinds of things. It's interesting that uh, in our society we don't have servants anymore. Uh, we, we don't have servants anymore because we think the position is too demeaning. And when uh, we make period dramas and we watch period dramas, as I like to do, we always feel sorry for the servants because they have to live downstairs. They have a low position in society. But Jesus says, you need to become like a servant. And yet our society can't cope with that idea. We've expelled the servant from our minds and from our lives. Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of the heaven, you should give your life to serving other people, to relinquishing status and to doing the menial and the lowly things. I think one of the, uh, one of the most distressing trends in our society over the last 50 years uh, has been how service jobs have been increasingly considered uh, to be low-brow. Uh, so to work in a grocery store was once a respectable job. Uh, people respected the greengrocer. Uh, to work in a shoe store for your life was a respectable job. I always, I always remember uh, when I grew up there was a, it was Grace Brothers at the time, it's Maya now I think, but there was a guy who worked in the shoe section of Maya and he was a great shoe salesman and that's what he did. But I always felt sorry for him because he had, that was his job, to be a shoe salesman. But that's wrong actually, isn't it? And yet that sentiment permeates all of our society. To do the menial and the mundane is insignificant, pathetic. Unless you're climbing the corporate ladder or the social ladder or getting your own business, there's no respectability. Those sentiments are always around. Those sentiments have always been around, I think, but they're now more pronounced than they used to be. But Jesus says that serving rather than being served is the far nobler task. To be a slave 
uh, in Jesus' day was even worse than being a servant. So to be a, to be a slave was kind of the next step uh, in, in terms of uh, being subject to other people. You had to obey somebody else. You didn't just serve them and, and, uh, and help them out with things, do their menial chores. You actually had to relinquish your own kind of freedom, the freedom to do what you want. The freedom of self-determination is the great idol of our society. As the Rolling Stones uh, sang, I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to love who I choose any old time. To lack the freedom of self-determination then is the greatest evil of our time. If self-determination is the greatest idol, then the lack of it is the greatest evil. My sister sent me this, uh, this great article the other day from The Atlantic uh, about kids' films. Uh, and the, the writer says, uh, talks about the basic message of, uh, of these kids' films uh, that are coming out. I think there's a new one about planes or something that's come out. Um, and he writes, Characters must relinquish the crutch of the magic feather, the magic feather as in uh, Dumbo. I don't know if you've seen that film. Characters must relinquish the crutch of the magic feather or more generally surmount their biggest fears and believe that their greatness comes from within. So the message in all these kids' films he's saying is that you are great, you already have within you greatness, you just need to see that, believe it and kind of unlock it and the way that you unlock your inner greatness is by relentlessly pursuing uh, all your dreams and hopes and aspirations and basically trampling over everybody else who gets in the way of uh, your dreams and aspirations. He continues, it's a, it's a wonderful article, he continues, it's probably no coincidence that the supremacy of the magic feather syndrome in children's movies overlaps with the so-called cult of self-esteem. The restless protagonists of these films never have to wake up to the reality that crop dusters simply can't fly faster than sleek racing aircraft. Instead, it's the naysaying authority figures who'd need to be enlightened about the importance of never giving up on your dreams, no matter how irrational, improbable or disruptive to the larger community. As Gene Twenge, the controversial cultural critic of America's supposed narcissism epidemic argues in her best-selling book, Generation Me, younger generations simply take it for granted that we should all feel good about ourselves, we're all special and we all deserve to follow our dreams. Following one's dreams necessarily entails the pursuit of the extraordinary in these films. These, the protagonists sneer at the mundane, repetitive work performed by their unimaginative peers. Dusty abhors, Dusty's the plane in the new plane film, Dusty abhors the smell of fertiliser and whines to his flying coach that he's been flying day after day over these same fields for years. Similarly, Turbo performs his duties in the garden poorly and his insubordination eventually gets him and Chet fired. Their attitudes are all part of an ethos that privileges self-fulfilment over the communal good. Isn't that interesting? It's all part of an ethos, ethos that privileges self-fulfilment over the communal good. In addition to disparaging routine labour, these films discount the hard work that enables individuals to reach the top of their professions. Turbo and Dusty don't need to hone their craft for years in minor league circuits like their racing peers presumably did. It's enough for them simply to show up with no experience at the world's most competitive races, dig deep within themselves and outbelieve their opponents. They are in many ways 
the perfect role models for a generation weaned on instant gratification. It's an amazing article, an amazingly perceptive article I think as well, about the message that we sell ourselves and even more disturbingly, the message that we sell our children. The message is this, you can be great and implicitly you can be greater than everybody else by following your dreams and it won't cost you anything. How different that is from the message which Jesus is selling. Give up everything, follow me. Become a slave and a servant of the kingdom of heaven. Become a slave and a servant of everybody else. It was very helpful the other day someone pointed out to me the difference between forgiveness and forbearance. We need to forgive other people for the things that they've done, the wrong things that they've done, but we also need to forbear. That is, there are just some things that aren't wrong. It's not wrong to like brown more than blue. Uh, It's not wrong to like hot weather more than cold weather or uh, hymns more than songs or guitar more than piano. But forbearance means giving up our preference, our freedom of self-determination. Forbearance means giving up our desires, giving up imposing those things on other people and doing what other people like and even learning to enjoy it as well. Jesus calls us to a radically different style of life. One of the things I hate in Christian circles, I shouldn't say hate, one of the things I loathe, is that better? (laughs) One of the things I don't like so much in Christian circles is the idea of friendship evangelism. That sounds an extreme thing to say. But one of the reasons I don't like it is because that's not how Jesus talks. Jesus doesn't talk about friendship. The categories that Jesus talks in is service and slavery. And that's far more profound because we need to learn to serve and to be slaves to people that we would never be friends with. And actually service and slavery goes far deeper than friendship. You know, friendship, you can take it and you can leave it, you know. But Jesus says, no, the Son of Man has not come to be friends with the world. Jesus has come to be the servant and the slave. So that's the style of of the Christian life, of Christian leadership, servanthood and slavery. And finally Jesus gives us the model and the example. In verse 28 he says, uh, do these things, that is, be servants and slaves, just as the Son of Man did. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, our lives ought to be modelled on Jesus' life of slavery and service. Jesus was the Son of God. He ought to have been served. If there was anyone in the whole world who ought to have been respected, ought to have been treated with dignity, ought to have been honoured, ought to have been obeyed, ought to have been listened to, it was Jesus. And Jesus said, no, that's not why I'm coming. I'm coming not to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for you. Everyone knows what a ransom is. It's a huge price that you have to pay to uh, get somebody's freedom, to earn somebody's freedom. 
We've been kidnapped, if you like, by Satan and by sin. Satan accuses us before God and says, how can you just let those people go? How can you let those sinners go? And Jesus' answer is, they can go free because I've paid the price to God, the price of their ransom. Jesus has paid to God the price of our release with his own life. And here's the message from Jesus. If Jesus has given his life to set people free from slavery to sin, to be slaves to God, then who are you and I to come along and make them slaves to us? Jesus has died to release people from slavery and to make them slaves to God. We can't come along and viciously impose our authority on them. Not to say that there's no place for authority structures in the world. But if Jesus died to release people from slavery, then who are we to make them our slaves instead? And if Jesus, the Son of God, has humbled himself and served these people, then how abhorrent is it for us not to serve them? If Jesus doesn't think it's below him to serve that person, then surely it's not below me to serve that person or below you to serve that person as well. There's a great illustration uh, in the next, very next section uh, of people's instinctive response, of our instinctive response to people versus Jesus' instinctive response. In the last few verses of this chapter, Jesus, he leaves Jericho and he's going on to Jerusalem and there's these two blind guys along the way and they're calling out to Jesus and the crowds come up and go, would you guys just shut up and leave Jesus alone? You're getting in our way. And Jesus has compassion on them and heals them. See, for us, people are always getting in the way. But Jesus has compassion and heals them. Jesus' life gives us a model for Christian service. But not only does it give us a model for Christian service, I also think it gives us the power and the structure of our life to be able to humble ourselves as well. You see, because salvation is a free gift of God... That means we don't need to climb over other people to get to God. So if I, if I think I'm saved by the good things that I do, then I'll continually be justifying myself to everybody and to God and condemning everybody else uh, because I need to uh, make myself look good and to make myself feel good about myself and about my salvation. Then I'll always, I'll always be right in my own eyes and everyone else will always be in the wrong. And whoever gets in my way uh, of me doing my good works, uh, they have to get out of the way. I'll, I'll trample over them because I need to climb up to God. But if salvation is God's free gift, then we can humble ourselves before others. We don't need to do better than them. We don't need to be better than them because our position in the kingdom of God comes by God's grace and not by our achievements. Our place in God's family is based on what Jesus has done, not based on what we do or what we achieve. 
No, Jesus came not to serve but to be served and because of that, because he gave his life as a ransom for us and served us and loved us and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because Jesus has done that out of his free grace. We don't need to trample on everybody else to get there. You see, James and John and their mum failed to understand the character of the world that Jesus is ushering in. They wanted greatness. But greatness in the kingdom of heaven, this side of eternity, means great suffering. And greatness, this side of eternity, means humiliation and service. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven means receiving greatness in the kingdom of heaven from Jesus Christ, receiving our place in the kingdom of heaven from Jesus and it means following the path which Jesus trod through the cross to glory. Not because we've won it, but because Jesus has won it for us. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to bring all our aspirations for greatness and for self-fulfilment and for being greater and better and more wonderful than everybody else. And Lord, we want to cast those before you and ask for your forgiveness. Lord, you are the great God of heaven and earth. You are great and we are your creatures. And Lord, it's just enough to be loved by you, to be known by you, to be redeemed by you, to be raised up to life by you and to be seated with you in the heavenly places through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to receive those truths by faith in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for climbing over other people to achieve greatness and reputation and status and whatever else it is that we might do. Lord, forgive us for that and help us to be slaves and servants just as Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, that's so hard to do. It's so hard to keep doing because it's so tiring, Lord, to keep giving and to keep serving and to keep dying to ourselves and following Jesus. But thank you, Lord, that that though even young men grow weary, that you never grow weary and that those who trust in you will renew their strength and will rise up on wings like eagles. Lord, for those of us who are tired in service to others, give us the strength that we need in Jesus Christ to persevere for the sake of your great name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.